Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we have a short lightweight little episode looking at the history and development of Australian dogs. Checking in the Australiana section of a second-hand bookshop recently, as I often do when I discover a new one, I came across a book with a cover that I just could not go past. So I'll put a copy of the book cover on the webpage as well because it's just the most fantastic bit of artwork. It is actually a recent publication called The Dogs That Made Australia by Guy Hull and I thought it might be an excellent historical lens to use, The Dogs That Made Us. So Hull's fascinating book serves as the major resource in this episode, but as always, the other references used will be in the list on the website too. Before I begin, I'd like to thank Regina G for her contribution to keeping the show in production and ad-free. I'm moving into my sixth year of production this month, so all the hosting bills have been coming in, and your help is much appreciated. Okay then, let's take a look today at how we came to have our own Aussie dog breeds. While our First Nations people arrived and began populating the Australian land more than 65,000 years ago, they appear to have arrived without any canine companions. Indeed, Hull suggests that the domestication of the descendants of wolves, the dog, occurred across the world much more recently, perhaps only twelve to 15,000 years ago. So the flora and fauna of Australia developed in a completely dog-free environment over millennia. The surviving apex predator here, since the last ice age, was probably the thylacine, known also as the Tasmanian tiger, though the powerful but smaller Tasmanian devil would at that time still have been present on the mainland too. The adaptations of the kangaroo and emu and other Australian prey animals were wise to, but not entirely immune, to predation of the thylacine, but otherwise pretty much only had to worry about the people. Dingoes are thought to have arrived on country via Asian traders from the north, perhaps around four or 5,000 years ago. They would have been the tame companions of those traders, though not entirely domesticated and it would not have been long before such animals cut away from their original human family, once on the Australian mainland, and returned to the wild, becoming feral in the new landscape. Once in substantial numbers, and in getting close to the Aboriginal camps across the country, the imported dingoes may once again have become somewhat used to humans. Some groups may have collected the pups and again tamed them to some extent, to be helpful or companionable in the clan, perhaps providing some assistance with hunting in some circumstances, but it's suggested that even those dingoes often return to the wild on reaching full adulthood, and the species never evolved into a domesticated and fully useful companion animal, like some of the wolves of the Northern Hemisphere did. Certainly the First Nations people here were already living successfully before the dingoes arrived, and they would not have needed to domesticate them to survive. Individual pups being tamed but never fully domesticated, they may have sometimes been a happy adjunct to the clan's lifestyle, but not a necessity for hunting or companionship, given the trouble they probably gave too. Dingoes did find the environment on the Australian mainland comfortable though, and they bred to eventually cover all of the mainland. I provided some information and discussion about the resulting Australian dingo in episode 28, The Dingo Fence, so you can head back there and listen to that one if you want a little more information about the dingoes. Known earlier as Canis familiaris, now Canis lupus dingo, 
Hull suggests that they are our candidate for the wolf remnant in Australia. So dingoes were never fully domesticated successfully in the way our domestic dogs have been. Certainly they would have recognised some advantage in living nearby humans, particularly for the scavenging opportunities, but they never evolved into an animal that desired to be a pet. Hull, a qualified dog behaviourist, suggests you can certainly take the dingo pups and attempt to train them to endure a place in the human-led pack, but that attempting to make a dog of the dingo is an optimistic exercise in futility as when the dingo matures it usually has little interest in being man's best friend. In its 5,000 or so years successfully roaming Australia, it felt little evolutionary need to give up its wild ways to reliably desire domesticity. Dogs, on the other hand, domesticated over thousands of years, often became loyal, helpful and keen companions to the humans, enhanced by the breeding selections that would have been applied by the humans they were involved with. Hull notes that even the Eora around Sydney soon gave away their problematic arrangements with dingoes in favour of the more helpful and compliant domesticated dogs that the British brought with them and bred locally. The Dutch and English visited the shores of Australia from the 1600s onwards, but I have no idea if those early visitors carried any kind of dogs with them, though they appear to have noted the dingo was in residence here. Hull quotes Englishman William Dampier's comments that they saw, quote, few land animals, but did spy two or three beasts like hungry wolves, unquote. Cook's journals also noted the presence of a, a wolf-like animal the first fleet journals sometimes describing them like a fox dog cross. And Joseph Banks had brought along his own greyhounds on his journey of discovery with Cook in 1770 and talked about them having trouble keeping up with the bounding kangaroos and so on. Various domesticated dogs will have accompanied the first fleet arrivals too, including Governor Phillips' own greyhounds, various spaniels, terriers and what sounds like the less refined wiry greyhounds, all belonging to the officers and other freemen accompanying the convicts. These imported dogs were to become a valuable asset for the colony, being selected for traits that better favoured the new non-European environment and bred up into hardier types. Indeed, Hull suggests it was these dogs that actually saved the early colony from starvation, facilitating successful hunting at last. So now, let me confess, I know very little about dog breeds. Though there had been a long history of selective breeding in Europe to bring out useful traits required for particular tasks, the British became particularly interested in the possibilities of selective breeding programs from the 1500s onwards and the development of those sort of weird dog breeds became an obsession for some in Victorian England. Anyway, I am an outsider to the idea of dog breeding, so I consulted an encyclopedia called Dogs, A Dictionary of Breeds by Desmond Morris. The first thing I found fascinating was how dog breeds were catalogued, and as you can imagine, from the likely early desire for dogs that could aid with hunting and herding, they were grouped into headings under sporting dogs, like your scent dogs and retrievers, livestock dogs, like sheep dogs or stock guarding dogs, and service dogs, like sled dogs or truffle dogs or simply companion animals. I guess this category would contain most of our present day pets now too, a concept that would not have been front of mind for those in the 1500s perhaps. But one surprising entry here was the subcategory and, you know, sensitive dog owners, you might want to block your ears for a moment here, was the edible dogs. 
Yep, you heard me, edible. Now look, there are only a few really, and why not if you're eating other meat? But still, the idea is somewhat confronting. And note, says Scott of the Antarctic probably, that sled dogs are not listed in that category. But of course, if you are going to breed them to eat, sure, why not breed them up to be plump and tasty? <laughs> Thinking about that, maybe the original dingo was on those seafarers' boats as a backup food supply too. Hmm. Anyway, the dog dictionary further delineates into dog types and then into specific breeds. In the early days of colonisation, in Australia at least, it would have been the sporting and later the livestock breeds that would have held the most interest for the new British arrivals. However, they were soon to discover that those dog breeds that performed well in Old England did not always cope as well in the Antipodean environments. Greyhounds are sight hounds, apparently, hunting primarily chasing something it's seen. But refined in the more European environments, they physically found the much rougher, bushier and hotter landscape in Australia a challenge, even if the game here did look exciting. Hull recounts one dog owner, noting that his, quote, greyhounds were unable to run down the first emu they pursued. Greyhounds are sprinters and need to capture their quarry relatively quickly. That lucky emu must have had a decent head start to be able to outpace them, unquote. Hull comments that, quote, for a nation of dog breed creators, the English were very short on sheepdogs when they arrived in New South Wales. Sheep guarding dogs would have provided excellent protection, unquote. Instead, guarded by less than conscientious convicts, dingo predation on the sheep numbers was a massive problem right through the early years of colonisation. But then, there were a lot of useful things that they did not seem to have brought out with them in those first few fleets, not least healthy and experienced farmers and their working animals for a start. But necessity provided the impetus and the fledgling colony began working on the first Australian adapted dog breed, the kangaroo dog. They needed a dog that might cope with the Australian conditions and bring in the much-needed protein the men seemed unable to provide for themselves. Hunting kangaroo is a highly skilled job, but the muskets used by the British were entirely unsuited to the task. The use of good hunting dogs to assist would improve their odds. But the kangaroo, particularly the larger ones, can be a fierce opponent, even for a seasoned English hunting dog. Unlike many flock animals, imagining safety in numbers, kangaroos will scatter in all directions when startled, making for the cover of the rough Australian bush and bounding clear of obstacles on the ground. While the British greyhounds were eager to follow, their fine silky coat and thin skin did not fare well, running through rugged bush at speed, being scraped and torn by the sticks and bush. If they could chase the kangaroo down in open country, they might succeed, but even then the Australian kangaroo was unlike the European game they might have been used to. The greyhound's first instinct may have been to go for the throat and just hang on. A kangaroo cornered will stand its ground and fight, the larger ones being very effective. Grab at his throat and hang on, and you're likely to be disemboweled. The kangaroo's claws on the large middle toe, backed up by the strength of its massive hindquarters, sometimes leaning on its tail and striking out with both feet, the fine greyhound would not have stood a chance. Sometimes a kangaroo will head for water, and when the dog follows, again the kangaroos will brace themselves using their massive tail and grab the dog and force it underwater, trying to drown it. 
the greyhounds might successfully chase down and capture a kangaroo if in open country, and it could lunge at it from behind, but even then the dogs were often left with substantial scratch and tear injuries from the rough terrain and the fierce fighting. Many were killed even while bringing down and latching onto the neck of a kangaroo. Hull quoted Captain John Hunter saying, As soon as the hound seizes him, he turns, and catching hold with the nails of his forepaws, he springs upon and strikes at the dog with the claws of his hind feet, which are wonderfully strong, and tears him to such a degree that it has frequently happened that we have been under the necessity of carrying the dog home. Unquote. But the surviving dogs did get wiser, and the owners bred from the more thick-skinned and hardier, wiry types, perhaps even crossing them with deer hounds and such. And the hunters working with them got wiser as to their placement and tactics too. Working in pairs, one dog would disable the massive tail, reducing the kangaroo's ability to thrust its hind legs out to disembowel its foe, and the second would go in for the kill at the neck. Still dangerous for the dogs, they proved to be much more successful in the hunt. The resulting tougher kangaroo dogs became formidable kangaroo killers, and thus great assets to the food supply of the British. The government used the kangaroo meat to keep the colony fed for many years as their self-sufficiency in agriculture finally began to grow more solid in the early decades of the 1800s. Now hardier and more successful at overpowering its prey, Hull suggests that kangaroo dogs became big business in the colony, quote, an indispensable tool for every settler, unquote, as a hunter and a guard dog. For a while, the kangaroo dog was probably the most expensive dog in the world. At one time, the pups selling for £80 each, many thousands of dollars in today's equivalent. That's a lot of money for a dog that may not even live that long in its precarious line of work. Demand remained higher than supply for many years. As they became more successful at their agricultural pursuits, by the 1830s, kangaroo hunting for the colonisers became more of a sport, and the kangaroo dog maintained its valuable place for a few more decades. But it is no longer considered a breed, if ever it was, though Wiki claims they are still around, being used to confront more feral pests in some parts of Australia, such as feral pigs and red foxes. Morris's Dictionary of Dogs considers the kangaroo dog now almost extinct. Described as the Great Australian Hunter, this giant greyhound was created for the difficult task of chasing large marsupials. It was also used to catch emu and, as Hull put it, quote, in a case of canine treachery, unquote, to run down and kill the native dingoes. In order to produce a dog capable of these heavy duties, imported greyhounds were probably crossed with deerhounds or Irish wolfhounds, helping to increase its size and strength. Morris suggests the typical greyhound might weigh around 29 kilos or 65 pound, while the big kangaroo dog might weigh up to 36 kilos or 80 pound. The crosses also gave the Australian dog a rougher, more protective coat. Hull explained, quote, The kangaroo dog was a tool, a large, expensive, difficult to keep and not very aesthetically appealing tool. Ultimately, the kangaroo dog was doomed. When it outlived its usefulness, it was not afforded the luxury of becoming a companion pet, putting their ugly pasts behind them. They were, in the ultimate canine paradox, sweet-natured, almost sentimental dogs, created for the most brutal work, against an innocuous-looking but dangerous herbivore in the harshest continent on earth, unquote. Well, there might be harsher places, Pags not being a working dog in the Arctic, for example. But the Australian conditions were a rough, far cry from the rolling English hills its greyhound ancestors may have once hunted in halfway around the world. 
Of course, the hunting success of the incomers meant less food availability for the beleaguered Aboriginal clans and potential prey for the dingoes, who then had to turn their attention to the new animals now filling the old habitat of the kangaroo, the sheep. And as Sydney and other towns grew, mongrel and feral dogs resulting from the original imports also became a problem in the towns, around the fringes of the settlements and on the stock stations too. Bly even introduced laws to ensure dogs were chained up on their own properties, lest they be lawfully killed by his constables. Van Diemen's Land settlements had a little more luck getting their agriculture underway, and while they didn't have dingoes to contend with as they set up their sheep breeding enterprises, they still had the thylacine or Tasmanian tiger to worry themselves about, even if they were a little too anxious, given their actual numbers and effects on stock. It was also clear to the Vandemonians that the right dog breeds could be a real asset, as long as they didn't let them overbreed and become feral as they had done in Sydney. And so the kangaroo dog did its bit there in the early decades too. Many an ex-convict, and indeed some escaped convicts and bushrangers, made their living hunting and sneakily supplying the government with kangaroo and emu meat, as we noted with the bushranger Brady in the Alexander Pierce episodes. So successful was the hunting of the Tasmanian emu species that it was very quickly driven to extinction. The Tasmanian colonialists included a larger number, or at least a larger percentage, of Scottish soldiers and settlers than the mainland, and they may have been responsible for the early importation of the Scottish terriers. They continued to be bred locally. They were small but fierce, rough-coated little dogs with an apparent much larger internal body image than its small stature actually supports. Highly territorial and always alert and fearless, they made excellent alarm dogs, if not the full scary guard dog package, and they were cheap to feed and easy to accommodate. They would take on rodents and smaller marsupials, even snakes physically, and they had no qualms about harassing larger creatures verbally. <laughs> they proved to be most useful around the homesteads. It would be this little adapted Australian terrier that would receive recognition as the first Australian breed in 1850, later being named as such in 1897. The dictionary says, quote, created from a mixture of Yorkshire, Norwich, Cairn, Scottish, Dandy, Dinmont, Skye and Irish terriers, a uniquely Australian dog finally emerged and was soon breeding true, unquote. The American Kennel Club, formed in 1884, notes, quote, The Australian Terrier is plucky, spirited and smart. How did they fit so much dog into such a bitty package? They're small but sturdy, self-confident, known for a longish torso, distinctive coat furnishings around the neck and forequarters, and a top knot of soft, silky hair that contrasts in texture with the otherwise harsh coat. They are alert watchdogs and said to be quick studies when training. True terriers, Aussies love digging, and the urge to chase small furry critters has never left them, unquote. So after the kangaroo dog came the Australian terrier. And sure, they're cute, and they were extremely useful in days of yore, but to me, being the sizest that I am, they're verging on sort of lapdog territory, aren't they? For me, the outstanding Aussie dog needs to be fearless and smart, but also real dog-sized <laughs> and genuinely useful. It's got to be the stock dogs, doesn't it? The working sheep and cattle dogs. So for fans of the popular kids show, let's talk about Bluey, the blue healer or the Australian cattle dog. And the Kelpie, usually the king of sheep herding on Australian sheep stations. Bob the Kelpie, he's my dog and though he's not too pretty, he's worth more than all those fancy dogs up in the city. 
He works hard in the yard to show the sheep his boss. I guess they've learned by now it doesn't pay to make Bob cross. As the cattle, and particularly the sheep wool, industry grew in the early decades of the 1800s, smarter and more refined dogs were required to help with the herd management. Dogs like the excellent collies, bobtails and other droving and herding breeds became ever more in demand. It was not long before breeding experiments were undertaken locally to produce dogs even more suitable to the Australian conditions. Sheep herders needed help to move and contain their flocks, and with few fences still and the need to drive cattle long distances to market, smart, hardy and robust companion herding animals were a must. The British breeds did quite well in Van Diemen's Land, where conditions were cooler, wetter and more like Britain in the early cleared areas, but further north and inland on the mainland, they often found conditions more difficult and tougher working dogs were required. A different kind of dog was needed for cattle graziers here. In the early years, the Australian cattle were often completely unaccustomed to management, being left for substantial periods to fatten up in the wilds. When the time came to round them up, they were often very uncooperative, so the cattle dogs needed to not only be hardy in the Australian conditions, but fearless and aggressive enough to get the cattle moving in the desired direction. They had to be tough, courageous, inexhaustible, and quick enough to face off aggressive cattle without risking serious injury. In the early decades of the 1800s, a contract drover named Jack Timmins was one who found the old English bobtails, or Smithfields, helpful, but they proved to be a bit too high maintenance and not suited to the range of conditions they would encounter working in Australia. Indeed, Hull records that the dogs even required shoeing to preserve their paws for such trips, a process that involved dipping their paws in tar and then ash to coat the paw pads. Kangaroo skin boots were often then placed over their feet, though it was said that some dogs simply chewed those straight off. But still, the task of droving, where cattle travelling 10 miles might require 30-mile days running for the dogs, was too much, and the drovers found many were lamed or were injured by the wild cattle from not moving quickly enough. Not ideal for the dog or the drover. It suggested that Timmins was likely the first to experiment to improve the dog's suitability for the task. He thought the only dog, quote-unquote, that he knew of, with the paw pads and the coat that seemed to cope with the harsh Australian conditions, was that wild sheep killer, the dingo. But they generally did not hold training past their puppy period and were totally unreliable as a tamed creature. But Timmins wondered if they couldn't breed them into the working dogs, adopting some of their physical traits at least. How he may have achieved this is conjecture because no records were kept and no one can be certain. But somehow, some dingo was introduced to his breeding dogs and subsequent pups probably had the large head and dominant red colouring of the dingo. Hull suggests those crossbreed bobtails matured into dogs that were long rather than tall, short-coated, erect-eared and dingo red. But the red bobtails retained too much of the dingo attributes and attacked the calves. The Hall family was breeding cattle on the Hawkesbury and also had a great need for a more suitable cattle dog, and they would be instrumental in developing new droving dogs suitable for the local conditions. Stud records for such dog breeding, if they ever were kept, have not survived, nor were there any descriptions of the actual dogs used and resulting, so again there is a level of uncertainty about the stories. Hull suggests Hall probably took some dingo pups and raised them with his domestic dogs, kenneling them securely as they reached maturity, when they might be expected to revert to the wild. He also looked more widely for appropriate dogs to cross them with. 
probably importing some specially from Northumbria in England, from a line of blue-mottled curs, a type of dog used there for managing cattle. Different to early sheep herding types, they were capable of much harder work and had a habit of biting at the heels to compel the cattle to move away quickly. It's claimed the resulting early cattle dogs developed, known as Hall's Healers, were bred from a dingo mix in the matrilineal line, though it took more than 10 years to suppress the dominance of the dingo and to achieve a healer that had the working ability that Hall required. And so, by selective breeding from the imported Northumbrian cattle dogs and some small element of dingo, Hall focused more and more on the physical and working attributes he required for the dogs to work on his cattle stations. The new healers had a short double coat with a fine insulating undercoat and a longer, more weatherproof outer coat and were physically robust and fearless in approaching and harassing the wild cattle. The first successful Hall's Healer working dog was available in 1830, displaying mostly the red of the dingo genes, though later the mottled blue came through more commonly. Described by Hull as, quote, a medium-sized brush-tailed dog with a rectangular appearance, it displayed cunning, high intelligence, resourcefulness, perfect adaptation to the environment, and a tireless, economical gait. It had a powerful work ethic and the ability to heal, darting in a crouch behind an uncooperative beast and biting it on the hock, unquote. And it had the courage to face off and confront wild cattle head-on. It was very willing to please and had a natural suspicion of strangers and the cur's protective devotion to his master, his stock, plant and property. Unquote. So that certainly sounds like Hall was really able to create the perfect designer dog for the task, though in time less physically aggressive strains were desired and the dog type was further refined. Today, in the further evolved breed, we see a range of colours in the blue healer, or the Australian cattle dog, as it's more formally described, with the blue mottling dominant, but including black patches and often tan markings down the legs. I've put some images from Dogs Australia on the episode entry for the Australian Histories podcast webpage. Hall's healers proved to be excellent with even the most wild cattle in the roughest country, bringing them together in mobs. Healers are dogs who truly love their work and they prove to be exceptionally smart and eager to train, as well as hardy and very low maintenance. Their success facilitated high stock recovery and reliable droving of stock to market. Their numbers only reduced after the 1870s when improved and cost-effective fencing wire and later barbed wire made cattle enclosure more common and the railways and more reliable motorised transport reduced the need for droving. Though many graziers even today still appreciate the help the now further selectively bred and refined Australian cattle dog can provide, and a recent study estimates that there are around 83,000 dogs still working on Australian farms. The early and later healers were the perfect hard dogs for the management of wild cattle, but they were often too severe working on quiet stock, as the cattle became more used to human interaction once fenced. Handling of sheep also required a much lighter touch than the healer could manage, though just as much intelligence, interest and stamina. Indeed, as the sheep numbers exploded in Australia right through the 1800s, there was a desperate need for an appropriate and more locally hardy dog breeds to help in this area too. The often black and tan tried and true Scottish Collie, already doing great service under difficult environmental conditions, would be the basis for the next exceptional Aussie dog breed. Sheep paddocks were becoming fenced, even if of enormous size, and the shepherds were now managing stock from the saddle of a horse. 
any herding dogs would now need to cover much more distance, working in sometimes large teams to control the flocks, and they may still need to nip on occasions, but not damage the sheep they were working with. They also still had to contend with the scrub that the sheep were often being grazed on, and sometimes in very hot, dry conditions. While the imported collies had the intelligence and the work ethic, they were challenged by the environment, with the extremes of weather and the rough country, with burrs and insects infesting their long coats. They just needed a bit of the hardiness of the Australian evolved physical traits. Again, there seems to be some confusion surrounding the early contributions that led to the development of a dog Hull calls, quote, the unsung hero of Australia's wool industry, the workaholic Kelpie. Australia's homegrown collie, unquote. But the most reliable sources agree that the main important bloodline was probably brought over to Australia in the late 1860s. The breed's early development lay with the Rutherford family, working with relatives back in the old country in Sutherland, Scotland, to selectively develop smooth-coated, prick-eared collies from the dogs bred in the English-Scottish border areas possibly with some outcrossing with something like a German sheepdog of some sort. Once they were happy with the experiments, a number of pairs were sent out to the Australian Rutherfords for further adaptation. Further selection and refinement took place on Warwick stations in southwest Victoria. One pup in particular, named Kelpie, would have a big influence on the ongoing development of the type when a stockhand took her and selectively bred her at various stations around eastern Australia, including places such as Custerton and Yarrawonga. A large number of hardy, expertly performing dogs were the result. Soon, all to be known as Kelpies, and with such excellent outcomes, several valuable stud lines would follow within only a few years. By the late 1860s, some records were being kept, and we have a somewhat reliable family tree for the early influential dogs, showing some of the colouring mixes which Hull included in his book. Hull states that, quote, pound for pound, breed for breed, the working Kelpie is the hardiest dog in the world, for sheer endurance, courage and stick-with-itness, in the most trying and adverse conditions on earth, no other breed comes close, unquote. I think we can assume him a big Kelpie fan. <laughs> and why not? They are a joy to see working. And I'll put a few links to videos in the reference list. Sheep are cute, sheep are beautiful, sheep are soft and curly. But when I take them into town, I have to start up early. Cause they never go the way I want, so I need someone to help me. I just give a whistle and a call for Bob the Kelpie. Come on, Bob. Come on. The American Kennel Club describes Al Kelpie as Quote, a lithe, active dog, capable of untiring work. He is extremely intelligent, alert and eager with unlimited energy. As a herding dog, the Australian Kelpie is intensely loyal and devoted to duty. He has a natural instinct and aptitude for working in sheep, whether it be in open fields or enclosed yards. This breed originated from collie-type dogs imported from Scotland, but was developed to withstand the harsh heat and dry conditions of the vast open spaces of Australia. Unquote. Their colour range includes black and tan, fawn, red and tan, red, chocolate and blue, with a pure black type, usually also slightly larger than the standard Kelpie, which are known as barbs. A Kelpie can look a little reminiscent of the dingo, sometimes in its fierce lean look, and indeed, around the mid-20th century, some breeders did experiment with some dingo crossbreeding with DNA evidence discernible in some strains today. But those experiments generally found that the resulting dog's capacity to work cooperatively dropped, and they became pretty useless as sheep management tools. 
the early Kelpies contained no dingo, and various studies support that contention, which you could read more about in Hull's book if it's of interest. With sheep being easier to startle and control, the little bit of wild that dingo crossing might have brought was unnecessary and overly aggressive. The loss of subtlety in management was a crucial loss. Nor did they ever need any dingo. The early breeders had done such a superb cross-breeding and selection job from various domesticated strains, and the excellent resulting Kelpie addressed every need a sheep grazier could want, producing a highly intelligent dog with extreme focus on their tasks and unlimited stamina. The physical hardiness of the change in coat was achieved by the late 1800s to produce the perfect working dog without any infusion from the dingo. We see Kelpies today expertly herding and moving sheep, climbing on their backs to get them moving through a tight race, extremely agile, intelligent and responsive. They're very impressive and, uh, as I said, I'll put a couple of links to videos on the episode webpage. The Kelpie breeding consolidated just at a time in the 1870s when dog trials and shows were becoming a big thing in Australia and there were some very famous working dogs to emerge from those dog trial contests, bolstering the kudos of the various Kelpie breeders and trainers and increasing the value of the true working dogs. They only had to move three sheep about but they were judged on their capacity to quietly keep the sheep controlled under the command of their handler. Hull records a number of famous trial-winning dogs, but reminds us that they were more than just for show. They and their offspring were often also working amongst massive flocks of sheep on some of the most remote and larger sheep stations in the world. But the dog shows, as opposed to the trials, proved to have a negative effect on the working dogs in the end, with their focus on what an animal should look like and insisting on a purity of type. Indeed, both the healer and the Kelpie pretty much diverged into two separate strains, show dogs and working dogs, one that looked good and performed well in the show arena, becoming a non-working show dog strain, and those that retained their more rugged look and sometimes unexpected colourings, along with the sensational capacity to reliably work the animals as the handler desires. But Hull reminds us that the reason the healers were created to work with and around up the wild cattle was no longer the main necessity. Cattle are usually now more attuned to management and regular transport and the harsh control inflicted by the healer dogs needed moderating and modifying in all but the most remote settings. He suggests the healers of today are now mostly (laughs) ute dogs (laughs) working loading and unloading cattle and guarding the trucks in the absence of their handlers. (laughs) In the more domestic realm, if not securely fenced, they can become car chasers and they can get quite overprotective, going a bit overboard in this role. He relates stories of of cattle dogs letting the gas meter reader onto the property but not allowing them to leave. (laughs) More helpfully, Hull recalls the story of a healer preventing a wandering toddler from getting near the dam. So while their job description has changed somewhat, they retain their faithfulness, courage and protectiveness along with their, as Hull puts it, quote, bite first, ask questions later reputation, unquote. <laughs> of the Australian cattle dog, our blue healer, he concludes, quote, Australia's pirate-patched bandit-masked healers are the true ockers of dogdom, diamonds in the rough, faithful to the end, and as game as Ned Kelly, unquote. Author Angela Good has written or collaborated on a number of books which celebrate Australia's working dogs, gathering many great stories and outstanding photographs from those who own and work with them. 
I looked at some stories in a book titled Top Dogs, and like Hull's story earlier, one of the funniest was the family who used to do their duty in the community each Christmas, helping Santa arrive for the community fair to hand out presents to the kids. Santa had gone inside to, you know, tidy up and get his clean red suit on for the occasion, but the dog, now not recognising his master, had him holed up in the house. (laughs) The neighbour had to come and calm the dog down and chain him up before Santa could start the proceedings. (laughs) But they're not always trouble. Quite often they have been lifesavers, like the stockman who became pinned under his injured horse. With concussion and several leg breaks, he was in dire trouble. Two of his three cattle dogs found shade and just waited nearby, but one seemed to realise he needed help and took off, travelling many kilometres before finding some fences. Quote, They told me that this sweaty-looking tired dog came up, barking at them and pulling at the pants of the bloke with the wire. Unquote. Thinking he was mad stray, they shooed her away, but her perseverance eventually got them thinking, and they got in the ute and followed her the ten kilometres back to the injured stockman, no doubt saving his life. And the great story of how reliably helpful they can be. This one was a border collie, a relative of the collies who had developed up into the Aussie working dogs, and when she heard her people moving about and getting the milk bucket ready, she would head off to bring the house cow up to the milking yard ready for milking. Perhaps not too tough a job, given that milking cows also get into the habit of being in the right place at the right time, but apparently this dog was ever helpful. The house cow had been sold, but after a couple of months, the dog's people had a use for the milking bucket, and the sound of the metal bucket being clanged about sent the dog right back into its old routine. Only this time, with no nearby house cow, (laughs) he apparently turned up half an hour later with the Jersey cow of the neighbour, two kilometres down the road. (laughs) These dogs often bond tightly to their owners. There were many stories telling tales of how long it took for the dog to accept any new partner coming into the home. Quite often they would work like a dream for the stockman, but refuse point-blank to take any instruction from his wife during a muster. (laughs) At least one couple had to get around the problem by having his master's voice giving instruction remotely over a radio. Petulant buggers, aren't they? But luckily most dogs seemed to understand that the children needed extra care. One family ever grateful to the dog who physically pulled their daughter out of a slippery-sided waterhole before she was exhausted and risked drowning. But you never know what level of humour these dogs understand. Good recounted the story of a Kelpie cross and his master driving sheep through the town to the sale yards. The Kelpie seemed to have got them underway and under control, so the drover popped into the pub for a quick drink as they passed by. The dog saw that move and decided the sheep needed to go in there as well, driving the herd straight through the hotel corridor and out the back door, and then continuing along to the sale yards. Just a little detour, but enough to make a point, perhaps. (laughs) I think the funniest, though, might have been the farmer and the Kelpie who were working in a paddock one kilometre long. In an effort to reduce having to walk backwards and forwards, the farmer decided to drive one vehicle himself and send his ute back remotely. That is, he rigged up the ute steering wheel so that it would point directly to the paddock corner and he set it in low range to just crawl back while he drove the other vehicle up to the corner, intending to meet it there. The dog, though, felt that he would serve best by sitting in the driver's seat. (laughs) As the two vehicles approached the paddock corner, the farmer noticed that the local agricultural agent had pulled off the road and was waiting there in the corner by the gate to speak to him. 
as he could see the ute approaching. The farmer stopped his vehicle and jumped out to meet the ute as it was arriving in auto mode. But he was able to see the look of absolute amazement on the face of the agent as he noted that the ute arriving was being driven by the drover's dog. <laughs> wow, those dogs are truly amazing, aren't they? <laughs> the farmer opened the door of the crawling ute and, quote, pushed the gears out and turned the engine off. I casually remarked to the surprised onlooker that, although the dog drove quite well, he wasn't heavy enough to work the clutch, so I had to start and stop the ute for him, unquote. <laughs> That's so good. I hope the agent told all and sundry in the pub that night how he'd seen a dog driving a ute. <laughs> That's how these stories begin, you know. Anyway, they're great stories, um, and you can look them up. I'll put them in the reference list if you like a good dog yarn. Off the farm, working dogs need owners who are highly active and spend a lot of time outdoors. Kelpies in particular are great fans of joining in on the human sports, from fielding in backyard cricket to surfing, one even holding the Guinness Book of Records title for the longest wave served. Probably our most famous blue healer these days is Bluey, the cartoon dog from the successful ABC BBC kids series called Bluey. Wiki states the show follows Bluey, a six-year-old blue healer puppy, full of energy, imagination and curiosity, and her family and friends, playing, learning and living life. A famous Kelpie that many may have heard of is Red Dog from northwest Western Australia. Red Dog was supposed to be a real dog who made the Dampier Karatha area his home base for a number of years in the 1970s, while he took himself travelling across the Pilbara and more widely, hitching rides in cars and buses across the region. He was totally self-sufficient and had no master as such, though he did maintain closer relationships with some people to whom he would return from time to time after his travels. A short novel and later a movie recounted his life. A statue of Red Dog, the Pilbara Wanderer, greets visitors on their arrival in Dampier today. So, in concluding his reflection... Hull notes, quote, The Australian working dogs were created during an age of colonial transportation and hard labour, then the opening up of wool and beef, and they played as important role in forming the modern nation as any group of human workers, unquote. From a place with no domestic dogs nearly 230 years after the colonists brought their first pets and hunting dogs with them, Australia now has one of the highest rates of dog ownership in the world. Almost half of Australian households keep at least one dog. That's 4,831,100 households keeping 6,375,000 dogs measured in 2022. The kangaroo dog may have been bred as a purely utilitarian biological tool, but we have moved our attitudes now into love and respect for the Aussie-designed working dogs and for all manner of the pure and cross-bred mutts we love and treat as family members today. So that's about it, except to say, yet another serendipitous thing happened as I was pondering this story on dogs. I happened to be listening to a BBC podcast, The History Hour from BBC World Service, when an episode called The History of Dogs came into my feed. It tells the story of an Australian bloke from the Guide Dog Society, I think, who was instrumental in crossbreeding a seeing-eye dog Labrador with a poodle to allow a woman in Hawaii with a dog allergy to have a seeing-eye dog. Apparently, the resulting Labradoodle usually produces very little dander and can often be tolerated where other dog breeds cannot. Wow, so we can add the Labradoodle to the list of homegrown breeds then. As always, I'll place a link to that podcast in my reference list. 
Now, for my actual potty recommendation this episode, for those who might like to hear an in-depth and very thorough retelling of the story of the wreck of the Dutch merchant ship, the Batavia, which occurred across the houtman Abrolhos reefs and islands off the coast of Western Australia in 1629. The Heritage website calls the Batavia story, quote, a fascinating tale of maritime treachery, murder and heroism, unparalleled in Australian maritime history. Unquote. And it really is a stunning and awful, gruesome tale. I had it on my list to look at, but the fellas producing the History of the Netherlands podcast from the Republic of Amsterdam Radio, which I have recommended before for those keen on Dutch history, have done such a spectacular job in a nine-episode st- series about the Batavia that I think there's no need for me to retell it again. I'll provide a link to the episode one on my site and you can judge for yourself if the Batavia story is of interest. So I hope you enjoyed that little historical doggy tangent. I think for the next episode I'll be turning my attention again to Tasmania and to a convict site there. It might be a bit more of a travelogue, but let's see how I go with the reading first. So take care now. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk with you again soon. Cheers. Bob the Kelpie, he's my mate. He never lets me down. He loves to ride in the back of the ute when we go into town. And we never have to lock it up with Bob there for protection. Because he will bark at anything that comes in his direction. <laughs> she